0: And now, hear God's holy word from uh, Luke's gospel, continuing our study in Luke's gospel from chapter 7. This is God's holy word. Pay close attention. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we may receive and understand and apply your word correctly today. Loosen my tongue so that I might articulate these things clearly. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Most all of you at some point in your life were either uh, forced to read this book or or you did out of uh, just a desire to read uh, a great book, but To Kill a Mockingbird is uh, so full of amazing, beautiful characters, and among the characters, one that is often overlooked is one of my favorite characters is Calpurnia, the housekeeper for the Finch family. You may think, well, what's what's special about her? Well, she's got a pretty significant scene near the beginning of the book. You know, Calpurnia runs the house for Atticus Finch. He's a southern gentleman lawyer who is a widower. He's raising two children by himself with the help of Calpurnia, the housekeeper. Two children, Jem, the older boy, and Scout, the hard-headed, obstinate tomboy, uh, his daughter Scout. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole book, and, and really it, it's so beautifully portrayed in the movie too, if you've seen the movie, Jim, the older brother, sees a, a boy in Scout's class who comes to school without lunch, uh, Walter Cunningham. And it's already established that Walter's family is poor because the previous day we see Walter's father, pay Atticus for some legal work with a sack of hickory nuts. He can't afford to even pay money for the work that has been done for him. So the boy, Walter, is from a poor family. Jem sees that he doesn't have a lunch, so he invites him home to their house for lunch. It used to be that you could walk home for lunch or dinner uh, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the school day. So when Walter joins the family at the dinner table for the noon meal, Atticus, the father, heaps up on his plate uh, roast beef and all kinds of vegetables and the little boy's eyes in the movie. You know how great he portrays it. We get the eyes, his eyes get big. And then Walter, the, the poor boy says, can I get some syrup? Well, there's no syrup on the table. You know, nobody, nobody's eats syrup with their roast beef. So Atticus calls to the kitchen and says, Calpurnia, can you bring in the syrup? And so when the syrup arrives at the table, Walter takes the syrup jar... And he pours syrup over everything, over his roast beef, over his potatoes, over his greens. And Scout and Jem are both looking at him and their mouths are open and their eyes are big. And you know Scout's character, she cannot keep her mouth shut. She can't let this go. She says, what in Sam Hill are you doing, Walter? And Atticus tries to shut her up, you know, get her attention, give her a look, but she can't be quiet. She keeps going. Atticus, he's gone and drowned his dinner with syrup and he's pouring it all over over. And that's when Calpurnia's stern voice comes from the kitchen. Scout, come in here, I want to talk to you. And she gets Scout aside and she says, there's some folks who don't eat like us, she whispered fiercely, but you ain't called on to contradict them at the table when they don't. That boy's your company and if he wants to eat up the tablecloth, you let him, you hear? (laughs) And Scout says, he ain't company, Cal, he's just a Cunningham. And Calpurnia says, "Hush your mouth! Don't matter who they are. Anybody sets foot in this house is your company, and don't let me catch you remarking on their ways like you're so high and mighty. Your folks might be better than the Cunninghams, but it don't count for nothing the way you're disgracing them. If you ain't, uh, if you can't act fit to eat at the table, you can sit here and eat in the kitchen. Well, you gotta love Calpurnia because I mean, she just she catches Scout right where she needs to be caught. What Scout needs to be set straight on." is that while she believes her guest is guilty of poor manners, she believes her guest is the one violating protocol. Her guest is breaking the rules. In fact, she is the guilty one. She is accusing Walter of a social blunder when in fact her outburst, her rude, crass outburst, is the greater social blunder. She's failing to exercise patience, and forbearance and grace, she's fighting over her little standards, which she might have been taught. No, you don't, you don't drown your roast beef in syrup. We don't do that. No, we, we don't do that. And, and that is a standard and that's fine, but she's ignoring the greater standard of love. In fact, love is the highest standard. In our reading from Luke's gospel today, we read about a man named Simon, who is a first century scout. He is uh, behaving toward his guests, just like Scout did. And just as Scout was corrected by Calpurnia, so is this man corrected by Jesus. This, the story is similar to another story that you've read in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and John all talk about a woman who anointed the head of Jesus with an expensive oil. But these are actually two different stories, the story that you're thinking of that we read, I think, back before Easter and we studied together, that, that story, remember, it was Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who anointed Jesus right before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. That happened in Bethany down near Jerusalem. Jesus is still up in Galilee in the fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. And this is not Mary, the sister of Martha. And this is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, not at the end. So these are two separate events, though there are similarities, interesting similarities. These are two separate things. So we're with Jesus near the beginning of his ministry. We're around Galilee. He hasn't gone toward Jerusalem yet to uh, you know, finish his ministry there. It's still early. We read last week where Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And where do we find him now? You know that we see how much that uh, that accusation affects him. How how much it worms its way into his head. It doesn't at all. He's been accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, and now we find him where? At a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Jesus always uses these opportunities, though. Jesus uses these dinner parties to teach kingdom table manners, in a way. These parties always give him an opportunity to provoke thought and discussion and to show what his kingdom is all about. So these aren't just opportunities for food and drink and fun. These are all teaching opportunities that we see throughout Luke's gospel. And while they're sitting at supper at the house of a Pharisee, Jesus together with other people around the table, a woman slips into the house. Now, ordinarily, their sense of space and privacy are not the same as ours today. You know, we go in our house, we lock our door, you know, we pull the shades, you know, we kind of say, hope nobody knocks on the door and aggravates me. But their sense of space and their sense of privacy were very different, where people would come and go throughout the courtyard and even the house all day long, especially for a big, fine house with lots of servants and lots of people coming and going all day. It would not have been uncommon for someone to slip in or to slip out throughout the evening of a dinner party. That's not what's weird, that she just shows up uninvited. What is notable is that this particular woman is not somebody that Simon the Pharisee wants to be seen with. He doesn't want this kind of person at his party. It's obvious that she is a sinner. And every commentator I read this week said sinner is just a nice way of saying prostitute. I think we can assume that she was a prostitute. She knows she's not welcome here, but she also knows that Jesus is at this house at this feast. So she heads straight for Jesus with the purpose of blessing him and serving him personally with some expensive, sweet smelling oil and sharing it with him and washing his feet and anointing him with this oil. Now picture this scene. You know, at this time in history, people tended to eat, laying on their side, reclined on couches. And there's this hall full of people eating and drinking. Maybe some of the disciples are there with Jesus, other noteworthy townspeople, respected businessmen in the community, religious leaders. And here into the middle of this scene comes This prostitute, she's known as a prostitute and she singles out Jesus. Everything she does here is shocking and upsetting to the Pharisee mentality. Everything she does is upsetting to them. First of all, Pharisees don't eat with Gentiles. They just don't. They don't eat with pagans. They don't eat with sinners. Not because God told them not to. God never said, don't eat with pagans. That's not in God's law. That's their rule. And it's a rule that later causes division in the church. As you well know, even Peter and Paul oppose each other over the way that Peter uh, maintains this separation at the table with Gentiles. No, uh, that's not God's law, but it's their law. It's their rule. And now there's a sinner at the feast. She's like a walking communicable disease. That's how they view her. By her very presence, She's contaminating the house. Then, as if it weren't bad enough for her just to walk in, she touches Jesus to bathe his feet. That's strike two. A woman doesn't touch a man. A sinful woman doesn't touch a a Jewish man. She's crossing all kinds of social boundaries and barriers here. Then, oh, give me my fainting couch. I'm about to get the vapors. She lets down her hair, right? That's strike three. Jewish women kept their heads covered, and even today uh, in the Jewish world, they're superstitious about the power of female hair. Uh, When we were visiting Brooklyn a few weeks ago, the pastor there drove us around the Jewish community. He pointed out, "Look at these. Look at these Jewish women. You can tell them they're all wearing wigs. I never knew that. How in the world they they believe there's this superstitious uh, hyper power to a woman's hair, so they keep it covered up." For everyone except their husband. They can only show their husband their hair. So they buy these thousand dollar wigs which look like female human hair to cover up their hair. And the mental gymnastics it takes for that to make sense are beyond me. I don't know how that makes sense. But that's That's astounding, but that's what they do. And here this woman lets down her hair. She walks into the party where she doesn't belong. She touches a man that she shouldn't be touching. She's a sinner and she lets down her hair. To the Pharisee hosting the party, everything she does is offensive to him. You can just see him rolling his eyes. They're about to roll out of his head. Everything she does he is offended at. She defiles his dinner. She defiles his guests. She defiles his conscience by letting down her hair. She defiles the spirit of the evening by making a spectacle of herself, weeping the whole time she washes Jesus' feet. What a drag. She contaminates everything. I was trying to throw a nice party and here comes this filthy sinner. In response to the spectacle, the man Simon speaks to himself, Maybe he says it under his breath. Maybe he just thinks it. Either way, Jesus hears. He says, If this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. And he said, I'm just saying, if he really were a prophet and really had all the power everybody says he does, he would exercise more discernment here. And I guess the fact that he's okay with this proves both he's not a prophet and he's an unfaithful Jew to begin with. And that means I don't have to listen to anything he says. I don't, I don't have to pay attention to him because I don't agree with him. I don't like what he's doing. It's the sort of way we say, you know, if psychics were real, they'd win the Powerball every week, right? If, if Benny Hinn were for real, he'd be at the children's hospital and not on TV, right? And that's a similar thought that goes through the Pharisees' mind. Like when Scout says, what in Sam Hill are you doing? But I've got a question. How does a prostitute make a living in a Jewish town? Maybe there are foreigners around, but maybe some of the men around that table have known her more intimately. Maybe she's not the only one defiling the party. Maybe she's not the only sinner there. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, teacher, say it. Now you've got to almost think that the way he says teacher is either mocking or condescending. I don't don't know what to read. He says teacher, teacher, say it. Jesus is about to show Simon what kind of prophet he is, what kind of teacher he is. Because Jesus can read his internal dialogue. Jesus knows what he said under his breath to himself. He knows what he's thinking. So Jesus tells him a parable. I know I read it just a minute ago, but listen to it again. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? A denarius is a silver coin, it's about a day's wages, so you have a creditor with two debtors, one owes 500 denarii, which is about a year and a third uh, worth of wages, You have one who owes 50 denarii, which is about a month and a half worth of wages, maybe a month and two thirds. It's Sunday morning. I can't do math as quickly like that. Y'all will correct me later. But one owes 500, one owes 50, and neither of them can pay their debt. And so he forgives them both. And Jesus asks the question, which one loves the creditor more? It's a pretty straightforward question. So Simon plays along. He says begrudgingly, I suppose, I suppose the one, I'll play along. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He doesn't know quite what Jesus is up to, but it's about to blow up in his face. Simon has an idea about the forgiveness of debts. As a man of some means, I'm sure he's been presented with the opportunity to forgive debts himself, monetary debts. But what he can imagine and what he's not processing and how he's not reading this is that he has a debt himself that needs to be forgiven. And he's not even thinking in terms of debt as a a possibility that has anything to do with sin. That you can have a debt of sin and that can be forgiven. And then, what's more, the sort of love and worship that flows to the one who forgives sin. Nothing is figuring into his attitude toward Jesus or toward the woman. So Jesus says, correct, you you rightly judge. That's the right answer. The one who is forgiven more loves more. So then Jesus turns to the woman while he's talking to Simon and he says this, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Who bears the greater shame? The woman or Simon Simon has not filled his role as a gracious host with respect to Jesus. He has all these social conventions that he's upholding and he's condemning the women for breaking those. And yet he himself has failed to follow certain social conventions. He has failed to honor Jesus as his guest. He has insulted and shown hostility to another guest. He's not protected her from the mocking of others. In fact. His mocking has instigated mocking, and he's left the door open for everyone to pile on. This woman has shown up. She, the stranger, the outcast, has been more hospitable to Jesus than the man of the house. He questions Jesus' status if he were a real prophet. He condemns the woman's status, a filthy sinner, when really, if anybody's status needs to be called into question, it's his. This woman's lavish love for Jesus underscores Simon's failure as a host. In this little section, Jesus talks about what's normally expected. When you come to somebody's house, y'all know when you go over to somebody's house, you know the first thing you want is for somebody to wash your feet, right? Right? That's the first thing you need, right? I mean, we all need it. Our feet get hot and sweaty, and, you know, it's kind of nice to peel the socks off and get a little water and soap. And Well, that's not normal for us, but that was normal for them. If you can imagine walking in sandals and dirt and, and animals are everywhere doing what animals do at the end of the day, and when you come to a party, you don't want to lean up on a couch and stick your feet up with stinky feet. So you get your feet washed. What normally was expected is that you get your feet washed. There was a kiss of greeting on the cheek of the hand, And you would have some special oil or perfume anointing for the head for oil. Again, in a world where you don't have Uh, daily showers, things that smell good, make life sweeter in all kinds of ways. That's what normally would happen when you went to somebody's house. Like we have conventions, right? When you come to somebody's house, what do you want to drink? I got something to drink. What do you need? I've got all this stuff to drink. What do you want to drink? Here, sit down. Have a seat. No, take the big chair. Yeah, that's my chair, but you can have it. Sit down. These are the kinds of things we do when we invite people over. Well, There were conventions then, and this man had done none of them for Jesus. It could have been that this was purposeful on Simon's part. This was calculated. He's intentionally drawing Jesus here to test him, maybe to rebuke him, but to keep him at arm's length. Simon's treatment is inhospitable to Jesus. But the way that this woman ministers to Jesus is all above and beyond. They're all extravagant. She provides water for his feet, doesn't she? But they're her tears. She has no towel to dry his feet, but she uses her hair. She doesn't kiss his cheek, she kisses his feet. She doesn't anoint his head, she anoints his feet and not with common household olive oil, but with an expensive perfume. Everything she does shows up Simon's inhospitable uh, attitude toward Jesus. As she spends all of her time in the most unclean parts of the body, the feet, which further illustrates the humble position she takes in relationship to Jesus. She has been forgiven much, So she loves much. Jesus doesn't hesitate to proclaim her forgiveness. He says to her, daughter, your your sins are forgiven. Her humble act of worship here is evidence of her sorrow for her sins and her repentance. Now, we're missing some of the timeline here. We don't know her story completely. We don't know, did he heal this woman earlier in the day and now she comes to find him at night to express her thanksgiving? We don't know if this is the first time that she saw him. In the next chapter, we read right away that there are women traveling with Jesus, and one of them is a woman who has been healed of evil spirits named Mary Magdalene. She's prominent later in the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. She attends to the body of Jesus after his crucifixion, and she's one of the first to see him risen. Her love, Mary Magdalene's love for Jesus, is evident there. Is this Mary Magdalene, is this the first time we see her? Now, Luke doesn't name her for his own reasons, and we can only speculate. And I, I admit, this is all speculation. I can't, I can't say this authoritatively. But it's interesting to thread together the story of Mary Magdalene and see how, even starting in chapter 8, she serves him in life and death. Uh, and maybe it's possible that she anoints him now and then anoints him later in death. At any rate, Jesus says to her, whether it's Mary or not, something to think about, but but Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. That's not enough for everybody sitting around. They say, who does he think he is? Who is this that forgives sins? And he says again to the woman as if to confirm it, say it louder so everybody hears it. I'm not ashamed to say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that's where Luke leaves us. We don't know how Simon responds. We don't know if the party was over at that point. If people got up and left, it was just kind of one of those maybe awkward moments that everybody just kind of keeps going and passes over and tries to move on. Luke has a way of doing that. He tells us a story, but it kind of leaves us hanging a little bit. What happened next? What, what's the next thing? Well, he does that so we can meditate on it and let it, let it marinate in us. And so one of the ways I like to meditate on these stories in the Gospels particularly is to ask myself, Who am I more like? I would like to say that I'm like this woman who, knowing the incredible forgiveness of sins that she's experienced, she continually lavishes the Lord Jesus with worship and service. I would like to say that's me, that I love Jesus the way that she loves Jesus. But let's face it, let's be honest, my life is nothing like her life. I was raised in a Christian home. I've never known a time where I didn't know the Lord Jesus. I've never strayed. I've never had a time where I've abandoned the faith. This woman had obviously, it seems, if, if we understand the world she lived in and the, the, the thing, the, the accusation she's painted with, I think it's safe to assume that she's lived a horrible, profligate, heartbreaking nightmare of a life to this point, and now saved from the horrors of sin and the darkness of death and the fires of hell, now saved from these things, she can do nothing but pour out her praise on Jesus' feet. I don't share her life experience. And so then I say, well, am I more like Simon who takes the presence of Jesus for granted? Simon is aloof, He's cavalier. Emmanuel is at his house. God with us is at his table. The Messiah, the one that his own prophets had told him for ages is coming. He's here under your roof, sharing your meat and your wine. The God of creation, the Lord of life and glory is across the room looking at you face to face. And he doesn't treat him with the honor that he would treat a slave. He treats him like less than his lowliest guests. What more, he has arrogance to mock the one who does love him and does worship him. He mocks her because she's not good enough to be at his house or at his table. Simon may be curious about Jesus, but he doesn't love him. I find some similarity with Simon. No, no. I can't relate to Simon either fully. I love the Lord Jesus. I submit my whole life to his rule. And what Jesus pointed out in this parable is that Simon doesn't love the way the woman loves, not because he's only been forgiven a little bit. And Jesus says, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. It doesn't really seem that Simon has, what, what does it mean to be forgiven a little bit when you're talking about sin and and depravity. It it seems that Simon hasn't only been forgiven a little bit, but he hasn't been forgiven at all. This woman's life of sin was no worse or more heinous than Simon's life of sin. Though, Though Simon might have been the more respectable man around town, maybe he had the greater reputation, obviously. Their standing before God was no different. Both of them are sinners. Both of them need the forgiveness that Jesus offers. So consider this. You don't have to have lived this woman's life to love the way this woman loved. We have many examples in the Bible of great men and women of the faith who don't share her life story, but who dearly love the Lord. Now, now some of you do have incredible testimonies. Some of you can tell amazing stories about what the Lord saved you from and how he delivered you. And I'm so thankful that he did. I'm so thankful that you can tell that story to us here and that you know that you have been forgiven and delivered from those things. And I'm so thankful for you. But I can't tell those stories. And furthermore, I don't want my children to tell those stories and neither do you. I don't want my children to have wild testimonies. I want them to have very, very boring testimonies. But to say that doesn't mean that we all haven't been forgiven a great, great deal. The challenge is for those of us and and for our children who have not lived hard lives away from the Lord, for those of us who don't have these stories, who haven't lived these lives, the challenge is for us to still love and worship the Lord Jesus with the same zeal as this woman does. And in order to do that, you and I need to know the depth of our sins. We need to know the great price that was paid for us. What, what bought our redemption? What, what, what purchased eternal life for us? And know that we didn't do that ourselves. We didn't merit that. We didn't deserve that forgiveness. We didn't earn a place in God's favor. We had a death sentence on our head under Adam in our sins, and no way to be forgiven, no way on our own to get out from under it. And God the Father forgave us those sins, a debt that we could never repay. So I think, and I believe firmly, that the way to avoid Simon's behavior and attitude of coldness and aloofness and distance and self-satisfaction, I think the way to avoid that is certainly to continually keep before us and to continually to keep before our children the practice and the economy of forgiveness of sins, that we show each other all the time what it means to forgive and to be forgiven, and that we see each other taking our sins before the throne of God, continually repenting of our sins continual, humble, genuine repentance and forgiveness shatters hypocrisy. Hypocrites don't have anything to be forgiven of. They don't have anything to ask for forgiveness of. They, they uh, live one life of, of, of self-righteousness and behind the scenes you see it's so different, but they never apologize for it. They never ask for forgiveness. They never express their sorrows And when our children see us act hypocritically, it drives them from the faith. It doesn't drive them to Jesus. And so no matter what our story is, if we really have an appreciation of what we've been saved from, then we love the body of Jesus the way this woman loved the body of Jesus. How do you love the body of Christ? We adore it. We weep over it. We want to be close to it. We want to sit at the feet of Jesus. The point again is you don't have to live the life she lived to love the way she loved. But if we abide in coldness and indifference and we're put out really by the body of Christ, we just, you know, we we don't want to do any more than the minimum. We're We're more like Simon. And it looks to everybody like we really haven't been forgiven that much. So I ask you and I call you to, to search your heart. Which, which of these two do you identify more with and why? The final thought, whatever social conventions she broke, whatever blunders she committed, whatever house rules she violated. Simon is the guilty one, right? His is the greater blunder. He is the one guilty of unacceptable behavior. Whatever our manners and our customs are, whatever our expectations are, whatever, wherever we draw our social lines, however you define politeness and, and correctness, forgiveness and love are the highest standard. Without forgiveness and love, and without the graces that trail in their wake, patience, forbearance, long suffering, mercy, compassion, without those things, we are no different from the Pharisee and the pagan who cannot forgive because they have not been forgiven. We are people of mercy because we have been shown mercy. And just as Jesus said in the previous chapter, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these scriptures and drive them into our hearts as as a hammer drives a nail. Stick us and implant in us these things. Father, give us uh, the ability to take this seriously and take it to heart. Father, we do love you. We, we love your son, Jesus. We're thankful, we're grateful for the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So grow us up to express this love more and more and may our zeal be the same as this woman's love and zeal were to show and express her thankfulness for the great debt that had been paid for her. Father, ignite this sort of passion and love and uh, that desire to show that worship uh, to you. Father, grant us this grace in Jesus' name, amen.